This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Today, as you just saw the video, we're going to start a new series, and it's entitled Stories. And um, how do you like stories? Remember as a kid, you know, really enjoying stories, and I think as an adult, I've always loved stories, and I think since the beginning of time, stories have been an integral part of every generation, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people relate to stories just for entertainment value, you know, we, guys like stories where things blow up, and, and uh, girls like stories where there's some relational dynamic going on, you know. Well, that's oversimplified, but you know, we, we, we all can enjoy stories for different reasons in terms of the entertainment value, but actually, stories are vehicles to carry important values. They can be. They can be vehicles to carry important values and lessons from one generation to another. And, and that's why we wanted to focus on stories here, because stories can really carry a dynamic message. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, we didn't have children's ministry, then we had Sunday school. And, uh, you know, I, I remember so many times a Sunday school teacher would tell us kids a Bible story, and then the question would be asked, kids, what's the lesson of the story? Anybody remember that? Yeah. You know, what's the lesson of the story? And uh, so I used to collect these of, you know, what uh, kids said and uh, share a couple of them with you. There was one time a teacher was telling the story of Jonah and the whale, and she stopped. She says, uh, anybody know the lesson of the story? And there's a little boy named Timmy who was in the class. And he raised his hand. And he says, I know. She called on him. And he said, people make whales throw up. <laughs> like, like that was the lesson of that story, you know. <laughs> uh, another occasion, David and Goliath was the story. And uh, another little boy kind of raised his hand. Here's what he said about the story of David and Goliath. He says, Saul's soldiers thought that Goliath was too big to kill, but David thought he was too big to miss. <laughs> I think he kind of got it, didn't he? <laughs> that was pretty good. Well, may maybe it wasn't Bible stories. Maybe, uh, do you remember stories growing up like the ugly duckling or the three little pigs? Or Remember the engine, the little engine that could? You know, I think I can, I think... Nobody remembers that? Okay, okay, well, Charlotte's Web, you know, they have all these stories. And, but even those kids' stories, there was always a lesson to them. You know, the ugly duckling, you know, is kind of mocked, but then he grows up to be a beautiful swan and all that. And, and uh, the three little pigs, it's like, I, I think the uh, brick industry was actually behind that story. You know, don't build your house with straw so the wolf can blow it down, you know, build it with brick. And the engine that could, you know, the power of, you know, thinking positive, all of that. Well... Actually, God invented stories. God's the one who invented stories, and I, I want to talk about why a little bit. We, we say that history, this only works in English, but history is his story. And actually, the greatest story is the story of God's redemptive plan for mankind and how he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's just the greatest story ever. But uh, stories have a way of like touching our hearts, they have a way of imparting truth in a way that can be simple and yet profound. Uh, definitely in a way that can be engaging. Sometimes a really good story just kind of draws you in and you start identifying with characters or you start kind of living in the situation or you, know, you might feel some of the emotion or you might be thinking through some of the dynamics of the plot line or whatever, but I think God, 
invented stories and God obviously utilizes stories to communicate truth and I, I think there's one really important reason why and that is because life is inseparable from truth. You can't separate the two. You can't divorce life from truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's all connected in him. And God invented life, and he invented life to be filled with truth. He invented truth to be lived out. And you can't really separate the two. So everybody's life, no matter whether you are a good person, bad person, know God, don't know God, no matter what choices you make, everybody's life illustrates truth either positively as a positive example of some principle of truth that your life can demonstrate or in a negative way. You can, you can be a bad example. Your life can have a negative message to it. We talk about life message, like what is the message that people, if people could observe your life, if, if they could stand back and look at how your life is being lived, what, what, is, what is the truth that's being illustrated by that? What is the message that your life? Paul talked about our lives being like stories that can be read, letters that can be read and observed. And Jesus is the personification of truth and also he, he is the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Jesus not only wants to affect our head, like some stories can kind of affect a, a logic or affect a principle, impart a principle or some kind of understanding. There can be light shed on a subject or sometimes stories really engage our heart and they grip us with emotion as we're drawn into what's happening. But Jesus doesn't just want to affect our head. He doesn't just want to affect our heart. He wants to affect our life. And both are important in that. So yes, he wants us to understand truth so we can think right. He also wants us to feel the heart of passion that he has and to feel what he feels. But the ultimate goal of that is so that we can live that out, so that the word can be made flesh, so that the truth can be lived. You know, over one third of his teaching was stories. And uh, in the Gospels, we have uh, about, I think, 50-some, 50 52 uh, different stories that Jesus told. And, and he did it so much that his disciples, who had a front row seat to all these stories, they, they came to him one day and they asked him, this is recorded in Matthew 13, which is a chapter where there are seven different stories that Jesus told, seven kingdom parables in that chapter that are uh, accumulated there, uh, compiled by Matthew. And they asked him, I think starting in verse 10, they said, you know, why do you tell so many stories? Now, it's not that nobody else ever told stories, but different teachers and rabbis in that day uh, had different methods, but Jesus seemed to really emphasize stories. So they're like, why do you tell so many stories? Well, in six, seven verses there, Jesus explains his answer. He talks about some people have eyes to see, but they don't see. And they have ears and they can hear, but they don't really hear. But, but you have eyes and you can see. And basically to sum it up, Jesus was saying, I tell stories for two reasons. One is to reveal truth to the humble. Like if somebody has a humble heart, like if, if they really wanna receive from me, if they're open to what I have to say, if they're open to change and to counsel and correction, adjustment, if they're open to learn, if they're humble enough to learn, they'll get the point of my stories. But then he said, I also tell stories to hide truth from the proud. And it's fascinating how Jesus' simple stories did that. Like he would tell a simple story, maybe farming or fishing or something that people would be familiar with. And some people would be hearing the story because they have a humble heart of wanting to learn, be open to him. 
And they would be like, aha. They'd hear a story and have a aha moment. And others would be standing around scratching their head like, what was that all about? Now, what's the difference? The difference is the state of our heart towards him. How many want to be a learner from Jesus? You want Jesus to be your teacher. You want to have a humble heart saying, you know, Jesus, I don't have life all figured out. I don't know everything I need to know. I don't have it all together. I think you know more than I do. I think I need to be open to what you have to say. You created life in the first place. You invented me. I think I'll listen to your stories. I want to learn what you want me to learn. Amen? Wave at me if you're open to Jesus' stories. Okay, good. I'm in the right place. We're going to tell a Jesus story today. So just kind of in framing in this series, here's kind of our summary statement. Stories are learning life's most helpful lessons from Jesus. That's the purpose of this series is learning life's most helpful, most important, most critical lessons from Jesus. We wanna be Jesus followers. We wanna be his disciples. What does that mean? We're open to him teaching us. And that means you need to get into his stories. And you need to do it with a humble heart of openness. Like I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to change, I'm willing to grow, Jesus teach me. If you have that kind of attitude when you come to his stories, then they make sense. And something gets imparted, truth gets imparted from him into our hearts, which then can affect our life because we're actually open to change. Okay, so today, the main story we're gonna focus on is one of his most famous stories. Anybody ever heard of the story of the prodigal son? Remember that story? It's in Luke 15. And we're going to focus in on that, but actually a couple others leading right up to it because it all is packaged together by Jesus. I've often thought the title of the story, the prodigal son, is kind of a mistitle, a misnomer, because the story is really not so much about the sin of the son as it is the love of the father, isn't it? I mean, when you read that story, it's not like, oh, the son was so bad. The story has a happy ending. The father loves him, forgives him, blesses him. There's a big party. It's like everybody's rejoicing. And, you know, uh, literary people, not necessarily Bible scholars, have actually called that story the greatest story in the world, the greatest short story in the world, excuse me, is the label that's been given to it. And obviously, I think it is one of the best, but it's interesting to me that this was the one occasion that we have recorded in the Gospels where Jesus didn't just tell one story, he actually told three in a row that all tied together and had the same message. And maybe he did this at other times, it's just not recorded. But this is the only time we know, because Jesus would tell one story and then he'd move on and tell another. And most of the other recordings of Jesus' teaching, you know, he kind of moves from one story to the next. In this case... In Luke chapter 15, there's three stories and they all have to do with lost things. There's the story of the lost sheep, then the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost son, the prodigal son story. So what ties them together though is a, a statement that is very similar at the end of each story. Jesus tells the story and then he doesn't leave us guessing as to what it means. Like, hey, what do you think is the lesson of the story? What do whales do to people, Timmy? He, he doesn't do that. He actually emphasizes at the end of each story what the main reason is, the main point, why he's telling that story. So the title of my message today is The Greatest Joy. Because at the end of each of these three stories, they all emphasize with a statement of extreme joy. And even the word for rejoicing and all that, there's different words, but one of the words means to be so excited, so happy that you can't help but dance around. 
Like that's pretty happy. I don't know if it's a Snoopy dance or what, you know, but being so excited that you're just like, you're so happy, you're so excited, you just can't stand still. And that extreme joy is attributed to God. Maybe that's what earthquakes are, God dancing around heaven. I don't you know. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of that. My whole point is, what does it mean for God to get so excited that he dances? What does that look like? The Bible doesn't come with videos, so we don't know. We just know that Jesus was wanting to make a point here that the Father in heaven has the most extreme joy when the lost is found. And if you wanna be like God, if you wanna live life with him, if you wanna understand how life was meant to be lived, this is something you gotta get into. You gotta understand what is the greatest joy. And we could think of a lot of things we get excited about or a lot of things we'd be happy about or a lot of things that would give us joy. And we're not saying this is the only one. It just seems to be the greatest one. Right. So I'll come back to that. First, well, you know the, the basic story of the prodigal son as to how the father had a two sons, an older son, a younger son. The younger son came to him and said, I want my inheritance now. I don't wanna wait till you're dead. Give it to me now. He demanded it. The father agreed. He takes the inheritance. He leaves town. He goes to another place totally squanders it, loses it all, ends up feeding pigs, which is not a great thing for a Jewish boy to do. And, you know, it's like he's just at the bottom and there he comes to his senses and he realizes even the lowest servants in my father's house, and he's referring to the day laborers, the servants that were just hired by the day, they could be fired in a day. There were other servants that would be like treated like part of the family. They're there for years, they live their whole life. So he said, even, even the lowest servants in my father's house has it better than me. Maybe if I just go home and, and tell him, God, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm so sorry, would you take me back? Could I just be like one of those day laborers, you know, is, is what he intended to do. So he starts home. And before he even gets home, the father sees him at a distance, which tells us so much about the father's heart. He's like eagerly, he let him go in wisdom, letting him make his own choices, but then he's just eagerly looking forward to the day that he might return because he sees him afar off and he runs to meet him. And the son doesn't even get to finish his repentance statement before that he had practiced in the pigsty before the father interrupts him and starts loving on him and blessing him. And what an amazing story that ends with a great party. Well, why did Jesus tell this? Well, at the beginning of Luke 15, the situation is described very clearly just in a couple of verses. It says that when Jesus was telling stories, that there were people who were not respected by the religious community who would come, tax collectors and other sinners it mentioned, you know, just people who did not have very good reputations in the community would come to listen to Jesus teach. And verse two of Luke 15 says that the Pharisees were complaining that he was associating with such bad people. That's Luke 15, verse two, you see it there. So the situation was tense. Tension was growing between the Pharisees and the religious teachers and Jesus because he was countering some of what they taught and some of the ways they lived and some of their attitudes. And, and so they're pressing him like, you know, why do you hang out with these bad people so much? And, and this tension prompted Jesus to do this thing that's not recorded in any of the other uh, recordings of his ministry. And that is, he comes with three quick stories that all have the same point. So I'm gonna mention the first two, and then we'll get back to the prodigal son or the loving father story in just a minute here. 
The Pharisees that are mentioned at the beginning had um, a great disdain for people who did not live like them. People who did not try so hard to be righteous and do everything right and perfect and, and be so religious. And so anybody who was not like them, they called, this was the official name for them that was quoted often, they called them the people of the land. I don't know, it doesn't feel like a put down for me. I'm an Oregonian. I think, you know, all of us hippies is like, hey, that's cool, you know. But it was a real put down back then to be called the people of the land. And I don't know exactly where this started. It's hard to tell. Maybe the Pharisees thought we're people of heaven or something in contrast. I don't know. But that was a label they put on anybody who wasn't religious like them and didn't live the same, by the same rules. They called them the people of the land. And there was this huge barrier socially and relationally between the Pharisees and the religious people and the people of the land. Here's a quote from one Pharisee back in Jesus' day. He says, when a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan, do not make him the custodian of charitable funds, and do not accompany him on a journey. Whoa, that's serious prejudice. A Pharisee was forbidden to show or receive hospitality from someone of the people of the land. They were discouraged from doing business with them. Basically, they were to avoid contact, if at all possible, with them. And here's, but let me boil it down to this. Here's what's so contrary in what Jesus says in these stories. Because Jesus is gonna say, you know, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. But here's the Pharisees' version of that statement. They believe there was joy in heaven whenever a sinner was destroyed. Kind of a contrast there. Like, they sadistically look forward to sinners being destroyed. And their view of heaven was, when a sinner gets destroyed, when a bad person gets what's coming to them, God rejoices, because they rejoiced. And Jesus is gonna tell three stories to give them a slap and say, that's not like God in heaven at all. Your Father in heaven rejoices when a sinner is saved. Just the opposite. Do you see the contrast? Now elbow the person next to you and say, be careful which one you pick right now. Because <laughs> there's no middle ground here. You're either with Jesus and the Father in heaven or you're with the Pharisees. Like, are you looking forward to people getting what's coming to them because they've been so bad and they need to, you know, or are you like God in heaven who starts dancing around heaven when a sinner gets saved, when the lost is found, he's like, yes, this is the most exciting thing ever. And we're like, why are you letting them off the hook? Smash them, burn them, kill them, they deserve, you know, it's like, so which are we? Jesus is trying to clue us in. Hey, there's two groups here, cross over from this one to that. Don't be like these people who are looking forward to the destruction of the wicked. Be like God who's looking forward to saving them. You'll be much happier that way. Okay, now that we know the contrast, let's do the three stories. The first one is the lost sheep. He says, 
Which of you, if you happen to have a hundred sheep, if you lost one of them, wouldn't leave the 99 in the fold and go after the one that was lost until you find it? And when you find it, you'd put it on your shoulders and you'd carry it back to the fold and you'd be rejoicing. And when you'd get home, others there would welcome you back and be rejoicing with you because you have found the sheep that was lost. And then he gives this statement in Luke 15, verse seven. He says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's the moral of the story. Now, he's telling this obviously because of their prejudice. The shepherding in Jesus' day was, was a tough job. It was hard, it was, it was dangerous. Uh, pasture in Judea was scarce. Uh, there's more steep ravines than there are just flat lands. So, and there's no restraining walls back then. So to shepherd sheep was, wasn't easy. And here's, thing you need to know about this story that's so different than the way we project our Western mindset into it is that most all of the flocks were not owned by one person, they were owned by a town. Their flocks were usually communal. Like a a village would have a communal flock and they'd all share, they'd all have part ownership, they'd all care about it, which kind of explains how this shepherd comes back with one and the whole town gets excited because they're not just saying, oh, you got your sheep back. They're like, you found our sheep. Follow that? Now we tend to think individually about our lives and about consequences of choices and about what we own and what we have and it's me and mine and, but in, in that day, in the story he's telling, there was much more of a collective or a community kind of mindset about this. If one is lost, that affects all of us. Everybody got it? Okay. So the joy is shared. The joy is not just, oh, you got your sheep back, good for you, you know, you found what you, it's, it's more like, thank you for doing that because now we all are blessed by it. But here's the thing that gets me, and it's important that we understand how God feels about the lost. I mean, that is important, because Jesus is cluing us in as to how God feels about the lost. And those we give up on, God goes after. And that's an important lesson. Those that we tend to give up on, it's like, eh, well, that one didn't wanna be here anyway. They just wandered off, kind of their fault. They should have stuck with the rest of us. If somebody peels off from the pack, we just find our comfort in the pack. And then because we're a part of the group, then we can, I mean, we learned this in junior high, right? That was sort of a joke, not really. (laughs) Are you part of my group or not? I reject you, you know, it's like, so, who we give up on, God goes after. But really, this story, the, the, the moral of the story has always bothered me a little bit because he says, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. And I'm like, that's a slap in the face to the 99. Right? Anybody else have this question? Anybody else wonder about this? Like, man, God, if you're happier over the one that comes back, aren't you glad that us 99 are here with you? We didn't wander off. What's up? What do you think about us? Do I have your attention? Like, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying here? It's kind of offensive. Well, here's what he's getting us to understand. That 
focusing on the needs of others is more important than enjoying our own state. He's telling the 99 that their focus should be on recovering the loss more than enjoying their own position. So what's the value? So what good is it being one of the 99 if God gets more excited about the one? Does that mean I should just go be the one and wander off? No, 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 that's not the point at all. Well, God didn't rejoice over me, so I guess I better go make trouble, then he'll notice me. I mean, God only loves brats, right? You know, it's, so if you gotta get some attention from God, you gotta go get stupid. You know, it's like, no, 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 that's not the point. What's the value of being one of the 99? It's to care about the lost. And by the way, here's the best news. Actually, him going after the one that's lost actually affirms the value of the 99 because if it was a different one of the 99, he would go after them. Everybody follow this? So instead of thinking about, yeah, I'm one of the 99, what, what's the value of just hanging out here and being a good person and being a part of the 99, never leaving the fold? I mean, if God really likes the other, you're missing the point. You're thinking like a Pharisee. Say thanks, I needed that. You're thinking like a Pharisee if you're offended by this. You're thinking like God if you're like, yeah, go after the one. We need him here, there's not enough of us. Instead of like, wow, I found this nice fold, there's 99 of us, I got plenty of friends. They give me coffee and donuts afterwards. This is so cool, I got somebody to care about me. Get your eyes off yourself if you want to be really happy. Otherwise, you're going to be kind of bummed that God's after the loss instead of doting on you. Get his heart. Get his mindset. Get excited about the fact he wants to go after the loss. Cheer him on. Go with him. Be like the shepherd. Rejoice when one is found. That's the point of the shepherd story. Now move on to the lost. So that's the lost sheep. Now we have the lost coin. The story is this woman who had 10 silver coins and she lost one of them. And it says, wouldn't she light a lamp and sweep her house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors. Again, it's a community celebration. She calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the peace that I had lost. And then here's the statement, verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the silver coin here is a, probably a drachma, which is worth a little more than the day's wages. And um, it wouldn't be difficult to lose a coin in a Jewish peasant's home of that day because their, their floors were like packed dirt, but they weren't uh, just, um, they, they, well, they were covered with like straw and flax and stuff to kind of soften it. So it's not like looking on a plain flat floor. It'd be easy to see a coin. A second problem is there wasn't, their homes were small, but they didn't have much light. They didn't have windows. Maybe one window, maybe a round little window, maybe 18 inches in, in uh, diameter would be the only window in the house that might let a little light. So understanding that when you're, if she loses one of these coins, then it's not on a floor that's just plain. It's on a floor that's covered with flax and straw. So, you know, you lose a coin and, and it's not very light in there. So it says she lights a lamp and then she starts, it'd be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Coins weren't very big. And there's a, another factor that I think 
you might be reading it in, but the fact that Jesus said she had 10 coins, really significant. In that day, it was customary for a young lady to, do, to build this headpiece of 10 coins that were connected by silver, and it was kind of like a headdress, and it was the closest thing in their culture to what a wedding ring is in our culture. And sometimes she would spend years, you know, scraping and saving to collect these 10 coins to then put them together in this silver chain. And, and in fact, it was the law of the land that if she was in debt, that nobody could take that as a payment of debt because this headdress was obviously worth way more than the 10 coins because of the sentimental value. It represented her life, represented her marriage. So liken this story to like a, a, a woman today who lost her wedding ring or at least lost one of the big diamonds out of it or something. You know, you can imagine the sense of, it's not just, ah, oh, yeah, I had 10 pennies, I lost one penny. Who's gonna sweep the house for a penny? You might find it. How many have ever walked down the street, saw a penny, didn't even bother to pick it up? You know, I mean, so th this is a big deal because what is lost, what it represents in terms of her life and identity and relationship and possibly marriage. And so when she finds this, it's like, yes, you know. And her friends and neighbors are excited with her because of what that represents, because the value is far beyond money. Well, no Pharisee ever dreamed of a God who's like this. They never conceived of a God who would be searching so diligently to save people. They viewed God as ready to destroy the lost, not seek and find and sweep and light the lamp and gotta find this, it's like so important. And when you think about this story, it's not the coin's fault that it was lost. Now the sheep kind of wanders off, okay, maybe the sheep just you know, got distracted or got afraid or just ran somewhere it shouldn't, you know. The, the coin didn't run away. The coin, the coin was lost by the, it's the woman's fault that the coin is lost or maybe her kids, I don't know, they're not mentioned here. <laughs> you know. What did you do with my, no, I don't know if that's part of the story, but. <laughs> so here's, here's the point. When you hear this story, would you be more blaming the woman for losing the coin in the first place or would you be more rejoicing with her for finding it? Which side are you on this? The Pharisees would be like, why did she lose that coin? Did she not value her headdress? Did she not value her marriage? Why, why did she lose her diamond ring? It's like, wait, they'd be finding fault. God in heaven is like, she found it. <laughs> Which are we? Okay, now both of those set us up for the story of the lost son. We have the son's selfishness. Give me my estate now, even though you're not dead yet, it's, it seems pretty cold. And then, you know, he ends up feeding the pigs and, you know, he's, he turns and is like, I just want to be like one of my father's hired servants if he'll take me back. But the real heart of the story here is the father's response. So we have the son's selfishness, then we have the father's response. He, he wisely let him go, knowing he needed to learn by his own choices. But notice he's just watching. It's like he'd already forgiven his son. He sees him coming from along, so he must have been, and, and, and he ran to meet them rather than hanging out on the porch and saying, I'm gonna go to the back of the house. He's gotta come and prove himself to me. What did you do with my money? Why did you lose that? I, I told you you would, you know, it's like, there's none of that in the father. He's not holding the sin over his son's head. 
He, he, it's like the son didn't even get out his, well, he only got out, if you read it, he only got out half of his planned speech. He didn't even get to the point like, let me be like one of the servants, what he had prepared to say to his dad. Before he even says that, the dad's like, you're my son, come on, let me on it. So he honors him and he puts a robe on him, et cetera. And he's not holding the sin over him. He's ready to forgive. Um, you know, when the civil war was over, just to borrow a lesson from our history. Abraham Lincoln, obviously our president at that time, and he was asked by a person who was questioning him what his attitude would be towards the rebellious Southerners that has succeeded from the Union now that they're being brought back into the Union and it's one nation again. And so he was asked, you know, okay, they'd been defeated and like what would be his attitude and, and how would he take vengeance, like how would he exact a payment of all they, they cost so much and loss of life was horrific and it's like, what is your attitude towards them? This is what he said. I will treat them as if they'd never been away. Wow. I will treat them as if they'd never been away. This is what our Father in heaven is like. He's so good to us when we've been so bad. But it's so easy for us to stand around like Pharisees, like, that's not fair. Here's the Father, he honors his son with a robe. He gives him a ring, which represents trusting him with authority again, because the signet ring was kind of like a power of attorney. He gives his son shoes, which were only given to family members, not to servants. He throws this huge party, kills the fatted calf they've been saving instead of the normal animals they ate in most of their meals. You know, he's the special cow they've been saved. He throws this huge party to celebrate his son's return from the dead. And then there's the older brother. Now Jesus added the older brother and their, his wrong response to represent the Pharisees' attitude here like their self-righteous disdain for those that God is rejoicing over. It's like the older brother, his attitude, his begrudge, he's like, I've served you all these years, you know, begrudging, and you never, you know. And then the rejection of his younger brother, he comes to his dad, when he talks about the younger brother, he said, your son, he doesn't call him my brother. You know, have you ever had that language fly around your house? <laughs> So his rejection towards his younger brother. Then, then also his focus on the darkness of his brother's sin. It's only the older brother that mentions the prostitutes. The father didn't mention that. The younger son doesn't confess that. But the older brother's like, he wasted all your money with prostitutes. You know? Okay, so what does all this mean? I think Jesus is making it very plain. And if you have any humility at all, it's a ha moment. It's like... We get it. If we wanna have the greatest joy ever, if we wanna be like our Father in heaven, here's what we have to understand. The Father loves whom we tend to reject. The Father forgives those who we tend to wanna to make them pay. The Father's greatest joy is when the lost are found, when the dead become alive. So if you're away from God, like if you feel some distance with him, in these stories you can identify with the sheep, the coin, or the son. Different reasons they were lost. Maybe you've been like a sheep and 
You didn't hate God or anything. You just kind of got distracted or you got too fearful of something or you got hurt by something and you just, you just kind of wandered off and it's like, and all of a sudden you realize you're not near the shepherd anymore. Or maybe you're like the coin and you didn't really choose to go away, but somebody else made some choices. They misplaced you. They rejected you. They lost you. It's their actions that kind of have made it hard for you to feel any connection with your heavenly father. Or maybe you're like the son and you just deliberately went your own way and did your own thing and just had your own stuff you needed to take care of or desires that you had to fulfill. Here's what you need to know. No matter how you got distant from God, he's the shepherd who's searching for you. He's the woman who's sweeping the house looking for that ring in the haystack, you know, needle in the haystack. He's the father who's waiting and longing, already having decided to forgive you. He's ready for you to come back. He just wants to see you take a step down the road towards him. He wants you to come to your senses and realize you might need him. And then he's there to run and hug you and embrace you and put a robe on you, put a ring on your finger, kill the fatted calf and have a great party saying, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He's lost and now he's found nobody is better than that nobody loves like that nobody forgives like that his greatest it's not begrudging okay I guess I'll take you back you can work off the debt no it's like I love you I'm glad you're back that's what means most to me now if you are serving God and you're already a part of the 99 then what you should identify with in these stories, what we should is the shepherd. We should have the heart of a shepherd. We want to go after the one rather than sitting with the other 98 thinking, yeah, we're good. What's their problem? We should have the heart of the woman who's like, we got to find it. We got to find it. Whatever it takes. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I, if I push you away, I'm sorry. Let, let me apologize to you. If I misrepresented Jesus to you, let me apologize to you because he's better than what I just showed you. Or like the father who's just longing for the lost son to return. I'd like for us to uh, just come to two different prayers today as we close this. And would you mind just standing with me as, as, we, as we wrap this up? But please just hold steady for a moment because I think this is such an important moment, if you can. Why don't we just bow our heads. First, while we're all here, just in the presence of Jesus, our great shepherd, who represents our loving father and his heart attitude towards us. If this morning you're here in this room and you just realize that you identify a little bit with that lost sheep or that coin or that son. You realize that somehow there's been a little distance that's come between you and, and the Lord. And, and, and you, you want him to find you. You want to be close to him again. And, you know, whether, whether you just kind of got distracted or got afraid or whether you got offended or somebody pushed you away or whether you just went out and did your own thing, you just, you realize there's some distance there and you're just happy today that the Father's coming in this moment right now to take a step towards you to welcome you home. If you're identifying with that right now, I, I would, our heads are bowed. I just want to do this where you, I, I'd like for you just to raise your hand and say, I, I kind of identify with the sheep or the coin. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. There's another one. Thank you. Yes. Go ahead. Just raise your hand wherever you're at. Yeah, thank you. 
All right, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Wow, this is so cool. I want to pray a prayer uh, with all of us together, and we're going to do one more thing. Um, and I'd like to, ushers, if you would come, because I, I want to give something to those that just raised their hands. So would you get ready right now so we can do that? But first, let's just pray. And if, if you raise your hand, I want you just to identify or join in with this prayer as uh, I just lead us in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that you care about us no matter our condition. No matter how we got separated from you, no matter how that came to be, you want to get past it and you want to bring us back to yourself and you want us to come back to you and enjoy that closeness to you. And it doesn't matter what's been in our heart. It doesn't matter what's happened to us. You think you're greater than all of that. You think that you can change our heart and change our life situation. And so Lord, right now, we just open our hearts to you and we respond to you as the great shepherd who comes seeking and saving. We respond to you as that father who has open arms, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that you would take us back as we come to you and let us just know the joy of your love and care for us and let that closeness be rekindled in our relationship with you, we pray. Lord, those who don't know you, may they come to know you now. Those that have drifted from you, I pray that they would be brought back to that closeness. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you for it. If you, I've got ushers here. We want to put something in your hand if you raise your hand. So if you don't mind, they're going to come up the aisle. Would you just raise your hand again so that they can find you as they come up the aisle? Thank you very much. We'll just give that to you. Come on, family. Let's tell all of them. We're so happy that they're part of the family. Amen. Amen. We are so happy you're part of the family. Amen. Now, just before you do, I dismiss you, give me one more minute. If you don't feel like a sheep or a coin or a son, then let me ask you, how much are you like the shepherd, the woman, or the father? Like how much is it in your heart? Like the best thing that could happen to you this week is for you to see somebody that was lost be found, that you see someone that was distant from God come back to him. How many want to be like God? You want to know the greatest joy, amen? You want to have that heart that he has. I'd like for us all to lift our hands to him and ask him for more of that heart right now. Lord, here in your presence before we leave today, we're asking that you would impart the heart of the shepherd to us, the heart of that woman searching for the coin, the heart of the father longing to see the son again. Lord, help us to be like you, to have your heart towards those who are not close to you. And Lord, give us opportunity, whether it's out searching or sweeping or just looking ready for the opportunity. Lord, whatever it is appropriate in the situations that you have us connected to other people's lives, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with your heart towards the loss, that we would know the greatest joy that you know as well. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, Jesus has been here with us 99 hanging out in the fold. But guess where he is right now? He's at the door saying, come on, let's go. Don't you think? Yeah. Why don't we pick up one of these block things on the way out? Reach some neighbors in your area. Pick up one. One explains it. The other you can sign up. Bring back next week. Put a thing on the map where you're going to have one. Come on, let's know the greatest joy. Let's go after the lost, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.